This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this U.S. politics edition of the program, Successes and Setbacks of U.S. President Joe Biden's First Year in Office. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Despite enormous challenges presented by the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the economy, President Biden racked up impressive achievements in early 2021. In March, the Democratic-controlled Congress passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, an emergency legislative package to fund vaccine distribution and provide immediate direct relief to families bearing the brunt of the COVID-19 crisis in the form of cash payments, extended unemployment benefits, and support for caregiving, health insurance, and pensions. In early November, Congress passed a key component of President Biden's economic agenda, a bipartisan infrastructure bill known as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. This $1.2 trillion package marks the largest ever federal investment in passenger and freight rail and road and bridge repair and construction since the creation of the interstate highway system. It also contains provisions for electric vehicle infrastructure, drinking water, and high-speed internet. White House representatives estimate the bill will add approximately 2 million jobs per year over the next decade. However, Democratic Party infighting over a companion social spending package known as the Build Back Better bill, the advent of the Delta and Omicron coronavirus variants, and rising inflation have, well, deflated President Biden's poll numbers and stymied further progress on his legislative agenda. As VOA's Rob Garver reports, heading into what analysts expect to be their last year with unified control of Congress and the presidency, it remains unclear whether the Democratic Party will be able to capitalize on the opportunity to see the Build Back Better bill or voting rights signed into law. Well, joining me via Microsoft Teams to discuss these and related issues on our final U.S. Politics Encounter episode for 2021 are our veteran political analysts. John Fortier is resident scholar of the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And Jim Kessler, he's executive vice president for policy at Third Way, a center-left policy group also based here in Washington. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Carol. Great to be here. Yes, indeed, gentlemen. Well, here we are again on our last show. And if you recall from our last program, the debt limit was still in jeopardy, but it was raised earlier this month to stave off the threat of a first ever federal default, at least until 2023. But no real substantive progress yet on this Build Back Better legislation, John Fortier. Joe Biden wanted it to be signed into law by Christmas but uh, it doesn't look like that may happen. So give us your sense of what are the sticking points, and this would be a reconciliation package, as we talked about before, with Democrats only, with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. What's at stake, and you know, what are the main objections, particularly by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin? Well, as we've talked about really for the last year, I mean, on the one hand, I do think the Biden administration has had a, a smart strategy to try to get pieces of their agenda passed by essentially having spending bills which emphasize their priorities. Uh, one of the reasons that's a smart strategy is that in theory, most of those bills 
can go through a complicated process, but one that can get through with a simple majority in the Senate. They have 50-50 in the Senate with the vice president breaking the tie, so they have just enough to get things like this done. Other things, not spending, essentially are going to be very hard to get done because Republicans can block them. They need 60 votes in the Senate. And while some Democrats have hoped to get rid of the filibuster, at least a full and part, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. The tough part of that strategy is they have a very narrow set of majorities, both in the House and the Senate, and especially the Senate, where they're 50-50, losing one vote will be the difference. And we've gone through these various gyrations through the year, the most recent one in the fall, with progressives and more moderate Democrats arguing about two bills, one which eventually passed, more infrastructure that was somewhat more across the aisle, could be supported by both parties, but then the president's Build Back America package, a big package which has a lot of Democratic priorities from health to immigration to housing and other things. The difficulty I think here is both to get something through, you need the consent of all the senators on the Democratic side, and especially two of them, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, have some reservations both about the size of the package as well as some of the details. And you've seen over time Things have gotten worse for the Biden administration. Their popularity numbers are down. The economy has gotten worse. And there's some argument about, is it worse, is it better? But certainly during COVID, there are a lot of things that are worrisome, and especially inflation rearing its head, which hasn't really been this high in 40 years. Again, is it temporary? Is it longer term? We don't know. But all of those things are putting much more pressure on this bill. Joe Manchin already wanted this bill to be smaller than the progressives wanted. And we're certainly going to have a smaller bill. He also has some specific criticisms. But with inflation out there, with the difficulty of meeting some of these agreements on a lot of the specific areas, with some of the inside baseball, like the Senate parliamentarian not allowing some things that are not really spending on immigration, that recent decision making it more difficult. I wouldn't say it's in doubt. I, I think at the end of the day, probably Democrats will get a package through that is called Build Back America. But what it looks like and how long it's going to take, we're still not there. And it's likely to be even smaller than certainly progressives wanted. And Joe Manchin and others will have a lot of say as to how it shrinks and, and what sort of package is allowed to get through. I think it's going to be still a big package, but much more modest than Democrats had hoped for. And also the time frame is slipping. And so we're going to see this down the road, not as quickly as some would have liked. So turning to you, Jim Kessler, pick up where John Forty left off. He talked about a lot of the impediments for passing the Build Back Better bill. One of the major ones would be, of course, Senator Joe Manchin, a conservative Democrat from West Virginia. He's opposed to something called the child tax credit being expanded extended for more than one year. John Fortier talked about the Senate parliamentarian who has to weigh in on these reconciliation bills. Evidently, she said that the bill cannot include provision for work permits for undocumented immigrants who arrived in the United States before 2011, something that President Biden wanted in there. Talk about the impediments and the politics of this, you know, how critical is it to pass this, even if it obviously isn't going to pass by Christmas, but to pass something, even a smaller bill in early 2022? Well, it's an imperative for Democrats. And if you look in the past, when Democrats have had new presidencies and Democratic leadership in Congress, that would be uh, Bill Clinton in 93, 94, and Barack Obama in 2009 and 2010. One of the reasons Democrats lost their majorities is that both times there was a major Democratic package 
that because of Democratic infighting in Congress, that package fell apart and was not able to get to the president's desk. And it wasn't so much that voters desperately wanted the items in those package. One was a an, a climate bill and the other was a health care bill. But it was that the Democrats looked like they were a bickering, incompetent, sort of chaotic mob. And, and no one likes to see that sort of chaos in Washington. And Democrats are at risk of looking that way now. As John pointed out, Biden's had some fairly major accomplishments. The American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, both of those things were in any presidency would be considered substantial accomplishments. But there's a third one, and it's this Build Back Better legislation. I believe wholeheartedly that it is going to pass. I have felt that way for the entire 11 months that it has been alive. And I've also said that it's going to look like it'll be dead 99 times before it gets to the president's desk. I think we've reached time number 97 right now. And earlier this week, it just felt very sort of hopeless for Democrats. Joe Manchin made some ominous statements. The White House response was icy cold. In the 24 hours since, things have warmed up again. And I do believe that there's going to be an effort to square the circle and get this done. It will not be done by Christmas. I had an email exchange from a senior Democrat in the United States Senate several weeks ago. I said, what do you think the odds are that this bill passes by Christmas? He said, 92% chance. Well, no one thinks it's a 92% chance right now. The difficulty for Democrats here is, The longer that it is out there, the longer that it is in, as we euphemistically call the sausage-making factory of legislation in Washington, it is just a very ugly Washington story. And you can't make the sausage and sell the sausage at the same time. So there's a bit of a sour mood in this country. There's the next variant of the COVID virus is here and has got people sort of in a bit of a whiplash. There's inflation, as John pointed out, but there's also some really good news. Like we're going to create more jobs this year than any single year in America's history. Gross domestic product will grow at the highest rate since 1984. The first-time unemployment claims this month are the lowest they've been in 50 years. There's a lot of positive news, but it's being overshadowed in some ways by the ugly fight in Washington, and that's why Democrats need to get through this quickly. You're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, from whom you just heard. He's executive vice president for policy at Third Way, and they both joined me via Microsoft Teams. We're reviewing the highs and lows of President Biden's first year in office. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA or connect with us on Facebook. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener from Phnom Penh, Cambodia, Saufal Nise. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Back to you, John Fortier. Let's pivot now to another Biden priority that he has recently underscored, and that is passing voting rights legislation. We've talked about this before. Some analysts say, you know, he's pivoting to that because, you know, he doesn't see a lot of progress on the Build Back Better. So this is another priority, which is extremely important, saying that it's urgent given so many Republican states have passed restrictive voting laws. 
undermining our democracy. Again, particularly the Democrats are saying that. But the Democrats do not have the votes to pass this alone because of the filibuster rule, which we've talked about. It requires a 60-vote majority and therefore Republican assistance. And there is none for this legislation. So your take, John Fortier, you know, on the possibilities, some say, of a so-called carve out for voting rights legislation in the filibuster rule. We didn't talk about another senator who has problems with that. That's a Democratic senator, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Is this legislation going anywhere in your view? Well, I think the simple answer is no, it's not going anywhere. And partly we've talked about it that the spending bills, the ones that can go through reconciliation are the clearest path to do something with a majority. The other way to really do anything is to get the whole party behind, the whole party in the Senate behind the idea of either eliminating or partially eliminating the filibuster. Joe Manchin has said very clearly a number of times that he's not interested in doing that. He thinks that if you change voting rights, it should be somewhat more consensual. It should go through this more supermajority process. Yes, there had been some negotiation with him about some of the details in the bill he might agree on, but I don't think he's changed his position. And you mentioned Senator Cinema, who broadly is not in favor of getting rid of the filibuster, and I think by implication, not in favor of carving things out. You know, Democrats sincerely believe in the issues here on this bill, but I think also the ones who are talking it up are either wishful thinking or it's just something to be talking about while this lull is here in the Build Back Better bill. I agree with Jim that Build Back Better under that name will get done at some point, probably smaller in some other form and a little bit down the road. But I think the talk about this is just there's a lull here and people want to bring back an issue that animates Democrats. But the practical possibilities of getting something like this done seem insurmountable. Jim Kessler, do you think that the obstacles are insurmountable for getting voting rights legislation passed? And do you think, in fact, this is just a way to fill some time while Joe Manchin and Joe Biden try to work out their differences over the Build Back Better bill? How do you see it? Or is it really fundamental for Democrats and the Democratic base to get voting rights legislation passed at some point? Well, I'm going to answer yes to all three of your questions. Yes, it's insurmountable. Yes, it's a real foundational issue for Democrats. And yes, they're bringing it up because they uh, they need a lull while they're trying to negotiate Build Back Better with, <laughs> okay. with Joe Manchin. I'm not sure it's a great filler for this lull because this is a very important issue for Democrats. And I think, unfortunately, it's a very important issue in the wrong direction for Republicans. I think it's probably the place where Republicans have gone really farthest off the deep end. And I'm sure we're not going to have time to talk about the January 6th commission and all of the emails and PowerPoints that come out about, you know. Well, we will, but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Then then I will hold off on that. But I don't think voters really care how many shots you put on net. It's how many shots you get in the goal. So bringing up issues when you have the majority and you have the presidency in which you're not able to pass it, I just don't know what benefit you get from those things. And yes, it is a foundational issue for Democrats. It's very important for me personally as well. But you can see the writing on the wall and the writing on the wall is they do not have the votes to change the filibuster. And that's what it would take to do it. All right, gentlemen. Very good. Well, let's move on now briefly to the commission on the January 6th insurrection As Jim Kessler alluded to, we've seen some text messages that have gone to former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. 
And he has recently been, I believe, held in contempt of Congress for ceasing cooperation with this probe. And there's an interesting statement from Republican member Liz Cheney, and she says, and I quote, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes, close quote. And she says, again, that Mr. Meadows' testimony would inform our legislative judgments on those issues. So John Fortier, she's calling attention to a federal statute making it illegal to obstruct an official proceeding like the counting of those electoral votes. What do you make of how the evidence that's coming out is taking the commission and how vulnerable might former President Trump be and the number of members of Congress who alerted Mark Meadows about the need for then President Trump to call off this so-called, you know, mob of pro-Trump supporters from reaching the Capitol. His son also text messages saying, you know, it's time for an Oval Office uh, intervention. Again, your thoughts where we are so far. Well, clearly the details that are coming out are embarrassing to the president and show how terrible in a way January 6th was. I don't think they changed the fundamental story. And I think just on this one part of the story of Donald Trump and how he stirred up the crowd and, and didn't call off people or quickly enough or didn't call off them strongly enough. I mean, I think these emails are showing that picture. That's not a pretty picture. I will say on, on the other side that you know Republicans in Congress have a mix of views on that. Some of them have more publicly stated their opposition to what Donald Trump was doing in January 6th. Others, maybe they worry about it. They don't say anything. Others maybe are more supportive of the president. But they are united in the fact that they didn't feel this January 6th commission was really going to be about getting to the bottom of this in a fair way. They worried it would be partisan. And whoever's fault it is, Republicans not wanting to join in on this or Democrats, you know, it has a more partisan tinge. Yes, there are, of course, a couple of very prominent anti-Trump Republicans on the commission. They're speaking out, but the caucus itself is really against it. So I think this tells the story again, tells it in more detail. And the story is not pretty in many ways, but I don't think it changes the politics. And I do think the idea of putting this in more legal language, I think it's unlikely the president is going to face legal jeopardy for these sort of things. The Congress had an opportunity to impeach the president in the very last minute of his administration. They didn't. I think that is putting something on the table, but it's not something that's likely to be followed through by legal action. But it doesn't put Donald Trump's actions in, in a good light. It fleshes out some of the things that people had seen before. So, Jim Kessler, you had alluded to this in your earlier answer. Please feel free to add or subtract to anything that John Fortier just said with regard to you know, what we're learning about these emails and text messages and Trump's intransigence to do anything about calling off what became basically an attack on the Capitol and on U.S. democracy. Yeah, I think that it puts Trump in an embarrassing light is one of the great understatements of uh, 2021. I mean, look, yes, there's very little new to this. It's just the volume of it is shocking. This was a smash and grab robbery attempt of our democracy on January 6th at the Capitol. I think there's a couple of interesting things that are going on here. First of all, you're seeing a whole series of Trump associates refusing to testify before the committee, risking legal actions, contempt of Congress. It is because they feel that the legal consequences of refusing to testify and to cooperate are less than the consequences they'll face if they cross Donald Trump. Number two, I thought Mitch McConnell's comments were very 
interesting. Now, Mitch McConnell, if you'll recall, the Senate Republican leader, did not vote to impeach Donald Trump, but gave a scathing speech on the impeachment trial before voting for acquittal. I think that'll go down, not his speech, but his vote is one of the biggest mistakes of his career, because if you're going to shoot the bear, you better kill the bear, and the bear is still alive. And Donald Trump will most certainly be the nominee in 2024. But he has lended some credence to the January 6th commission, which is not a partisan commission, but it is not a fully bipartisan commission either. It doesn't have any Trump supporters on there. But he noted some of the documents that were released and said that he was really interested in seeing them and learning more about them. That is not normally what you would hear from Republicans. And then finally, what I'd say is what the commission does in terms of hearings when that comes, I think will be far less important than the documents that it is able to uncover and the text messages. And that's where you're going to find the most embarrassing and the most, I'd say, legally detrimental pieces of this, because there's going to be enough people that will dump their text messages and their emails that the argument of executive privilege might not matter so much. All right. So, Jim Kessler, you're saying that you don't see any reason why, notwithstanding all of these messages and text messages and and evidence coming out, that former President Donald Trump would not be the Republican nominee for 2024. He will be the nominee in 2024. And how about you, John Fortier? Do you agree? I agree mostly. I guess I, I qualify that a bit. I think we don't know what is in Donald Trump's mind. It is his decision to make whether to run or not. And I, I've always believed that he can wait longer than a typical nominee showing up maybe the year of the election rather than two years in advance. But if, if that time were to come now, to me, it seems like he would pull the trigger and run. And he's popular in the Republican base. He would very likely win a primary. It's his if he wants it. And I actually think that the lack of popularity or the dwindling popularity of the Biden administration, at least at this point, uh, would be encouraging for him to run. Uh, And at this point, the nomination is his to be had with a few caveats. All right, gentlemen, before we get to 2024, we have the midterms next year in 2022, which are very critical. Many predictions have been made. We know that the so-called out party usually does very well. That would be the Republicans. Well, you get one more uh, chance, Jim Kessler, to give us any sense of predictions and uh, caveats for 2022. If the midterms perform the way typical midterms perform, the vote swing is typical to what has happened in past midterms. Democrats will lose 38 seats in the House and they will lose five seats in the Senate. But I think Democrats will do better because the economy will be strong. So they'll have that at their back. I do believe that Build Back Better will pass. There will be some bipartisan legislation that signals normalcy in Washington. So I think the Democratic losses in the House will be less than the 38 than what would be expected and will be closer to 20. And I think it's very possible that Democrats can keep their majority in the Senate and hold to 50. But I'd say that's less than a 50-50 chance. John Fortier, you get the last word. You know, in the midterms, I broadly agree with Jim. I guess I would put it this way. For a president to really gain seats in the House of Representatives or even probably to hold the losses to just a handful, which is what Democrats would have to do to keep the House, you have to be of extraordinary popularity. Both Presidents Bush and Clinton did that, but they were at near 65% job who were rating, sky-high ratings for any president. That would be a very big change from what we have today. Jim may be right that we may be in a better place economically, and that would certainly be better for the Democrats than position they're in today. 
And the economic numbers are very hard to read because they come from the fact that we've had this big downturn because of COVID and we have inflation, which might be temporary, but might be more permanent. So there are ways to look at it that's positive and ways to look at it that are negative. But right now the president is sitting at you know, somewhere in the low 40s of job approval rating. Now, that number is really terrible for Democrats. If things improve, he'll be at a higher position. They'll still lose some seats. They'll probably lose the majorities. But if it were like it is today or worse, they could be facing some very big losses. All right, gentlemen, we'll, we'll hold you to your predictions next year. Meantime, thank you both for your terrific insights. Happy holidays, and we look forward to seeing you next year. Great to be on. Thank you. My guests were John Fortier, resident fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.